Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jim, you keep me in touch with my inner contrarian, and I want to thank you for that. (laughs) That's what you say now. (laughs) (laughs) This show today is a call for better thinking and is in opposition to our dominant culture, which rewards outrage and and really punishes nuance. I I love this idea of the the loss of nuance and and the the fight to bring it back, because I'm always the guy who's saying, yeah, I agree with you, but... (laughs) Celebrating nuance. Megan Dom. We're not allowing ourselves to to sort through our confusions. You have to be on one side or the other. And I always say to my students when I teach, if you're not conflicted, you're either lying to yourself or you're not very smart. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix it? it? How do we fix it? We need nuance. There ought to be a bumper sticker that says those three words. I think we need a movement, Jim. The nuance movement. I can see that catching on in a heartbeat, Richard. But in a serious sense, our hyper-partisan political style today is bumping up against the guardrails of our democratic institutions. We certainly saw that on January 6th with the mob attacking the Capitol. We see it every day in how we debate issues on social media and elsewhere. There is a litmus test on the right, and if you don't pass it, you're not a real Republican. And in this episode, we look at the lack of nuance on the left. Our guest is Megan Dahm, author of the book, The Problem with Everything, My Journey Through the New Culture Wars. Megan is a feminist and writer, and she's also the host of a podcast. It's called The Unspeakable. The show has this slogan, the stuff we're not supposed to talk about is often the stuff we have to talk about. We spoke to Megan back in late 2019, and this episode is an edited version of that conversation. She told us that today in our public square, challenging assumptions is something that often gets you penalized. It used to be just a, an article of faith in liberal thought. If you were a thinking, rational, enlightened person, you listened to what other people had to say. You thought critically about your own thought process. You looked around. You looked for evidence. And over the last couple of years, and I think this has been very much emboldened by social media, the reward system for doing precisely the opposite Oh, great that there are people waging very successful careers just sort of saying the obvious thing 
over and over again and very loudly and not advancing any arguments. And you made a journey from a certain pretty comfortable worldview. I'm going to actually read something you wrote. You said, I spent most of my adulthood fairly aligned with the kinds of people I'd gone to college with. That we were all on the same team was simply a given. We all read the New York Times, listened to NPR, and voted for Democrats. And then what happened? Sometime around 2015, now this is well before Trump emerged as anybody we ever thought would be in the White House, I started to notice there was a lot of pushback, especially on social media, if you were a woman who considered herself on the left, if you were suggesting anything that went against the approved feminist message, articles of faith among extreme leftists, if you were saying, hey, wait a second, maybe there is a gender wage gap, yes, obviously, but maybe we should look at the reasons for that, you would be slapped back and your argument would not even be heard. And in fact, you wouldn't even want to continue speaking because the reaction would be like, whoa, wait a second, are you, are you anti-feminist? Are you an internalized misogynist? What's going on here? So how did you come to change your, your, your way of, of thinking? You know, it's funny because I actually have not changed my way of thinking. What's changed is the degree to which I am aligned with a lot of my peers. So, you know, I started working as a journalist, as, as a writer in the early to mid 90s. And I kind of figured out early on that I liked writing controversial essays. I liked being counterintuitive. I liked suggesting to my readers that we assume one thing, but what would happen if we thought about it a different way? And back then, if you wrote articles that got readers angry, you got another assignment. That was the job. That was the job of being a public thinker, right? And, and now? <laughs> well, you know, a couple of years ago, I started to notice that that wasn't the job. Actually, what you were supposed to do was say the obvious thing. Could you, could you give us an example of, of something that, that you said that you thought, hey, this is what, you know, I, I'm a feminist. I come out of a liberal tradition yeah. and something which got a lot of pushback. Well, here's the thing. I grew up right alongside second wave feminism. Okay. Okay. So what is that I was first? Well, second wave <laughs> feminism, you know, there are waves of feminism. So right. the first wave of feminism were the suffragettes back, you know, the, the turn mm -hmm. of the century, voting rights. Second wave feminism comes along in the late 60s, early 1970s. That's Gloria Steinem, that's Bella Abzug, and a lot of that had to do with reproductive rights, abortion, access to birth control, workplace issues also. And so these sort of benchmarks of feminism were really imprinted on me, and, and all the while, I never had a sense as a girl growing up in those decades that I was anything but equal to boys. It did not cross my mind, if anything, boys were doing worse. They were getting worse grades. They weren't sitting still in school. By the time I got to college, far more women were going to college than men. We graduate. We're buying our own homes at a higher rate. So I never had a sense that we were falling back in any way. Now, fast forward a couple of decades where we're sitting now, the, the premise in the culture has become this notion that women are an underclass. Somehow, despite all of this progress that was pretty palpable to me, the dominant narrative is that we are now operating, or we are still operating under the thumb of this patriarchy. And I thought that was really strange and, and interesting, and that's what I started pushing back on. And that's where I noticed a real division between 
what I thought and what apparently I was supposed to think. But it, the, the pushback to you, though, is that the vast majority of corporate boards, CEOs, leaders of Congress, our president, are men. Right. And, and that women have made great strides, but they're still not at the top. That's true. And I would say women have made great strides, but they're still not at the top. But even this idea that women have made great strides, that is somehow overlooked. Also, with your background as a, someone who's a close observer of everyday life and, 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 and dialogue, it strikes me that some of your reaction is almost temperamental. Like some, there will be a certain style to modern feminism that just kind of gets under your skin. And you wrote that you almost called your book, You Are Not a Badass. Yes. What were you thinking? This idea of the, of the badass. I mean, I started noticing this on sort of on social media or, or Tumblr. There was this like this kind of idea that that the woman, you know, it was so difficult to be a woman in, in contemporary America that just merely getting out of bed every morning and paying your rent on time and going to work, you know, fighting the patriarchy at every turn, that made you a badass. Hashtag. And, yeah, and it, and it just somehow, it, you know, it became this meme and it became this sort of shorthand for an empowered woman. You sound conflicted. And I think part of what you're saying is, Many of us are conflicted. We should embrace that sense of being conflicted rather than try and put ourselves rigidly in one camp or another. Totally. We're not allowing ourselves to, to sort through our confusions. You have to be on one side or the other. And I always say to my students when I teach, if you're not conflicted, you're either lying to yourself or you're not very smart. What do you say to people who say, Fine, but we're in the fight of our lives right now. We can't afford anybody to waver from our team. We need to be in this together and fight, you know, the, the powers that be. And how dare you admit to any doubts or any nuance? I would say we are in the fight of our lives. We are in a pretty dire situation, which is all the more reason that the left has to get its act together. You cannot use Trumpism as an excuse for an undisciplined strategy, for lazy thinking, for authoritarianism. You know, it's funny, the, the authoritarians and the puritanicals used to be on the right, right? And now they're on well, the left. Well, I, I would argue they still are. <laughs> yes, they are, well. but, but they're coming together. It's the horseshoe theory, right? So, you know, these extremists on both sides have more in common than, than we would like. Well, let's talk about that authoritarianism a little bit. That's an interesting word. The people you're talking about would never see themselves as authoritarians. You're talking about people trying to police discussions, police yeah. political viewpoints on the left. Yeah. And I mean, I want to be really careful about how I talk about this because, you know, there is this sort of narrative that comes out of Fox News and Tucker Carlson. They're, they're happy every night to broadcast the latest campus craziness story. Um I think those things get blown out of proportion. You know, words like trigger warning and special snowflake and all that, I think those have been sort of weaponized and, and really diluted out of any, any meaning. Um, but I do think that there are this tiny fraction of extremists on the left have an outsized influence. I mean, you can get a couple hundred people on Twitter calling somebody a racist and a corporation will come in and fire that person. And that, to me, is really scary. Is social media dumbing down the conversation and, and, and rewarding those people who are either very much on the left or very much on the right? 
Yeah, it definitely rewards obvious messages. And if the smart, thoughtful people don't start pushing back on this and saying exactly what you said in the beginning, hey, wait a minute, maybe it's this, it's sort of this, it's this other thing, and not being afraid to have a nuanced conversation that includes conflicted, conflicting ideas. If the smart, thoughtful people won't do that, the stupid, thoughtless people on the other side, on the right, are going to be happy to step in and have conversations along the same lines that are a whole lot less productive and less nuanced. You say your mission is inspecting your own house for hypocrisy. What are some examples of, of that? Well, you know, people say, oh, why do you beat up on the left? The right is so much worse. Yes, exactly. That is why we have to patrol our own house. You know, there was James Baldwin had that beautiful quote from notes from of a native son. He says, you know, I love, I'm going to misquote him, but, you know, I love America more than any country in the world, which is why... I uh, retain the right to to criticize her at every turn. I'm paraphrasing, but I've always held the left into higher account than the right. I expect more. Um, we have a lot of smart people over here, and the smart people need to start speaking. But it seems that there's an awful lot of beating up on other people that are on the left. I mean, a lot of the targets of this are liberals. Yes. Well, because liberals are not the same as progressives. Progressives are like, the new liberals. Progressives see liberals as neoliberals. To be called a liberal at this point is sort of to be called a, a centrist, if you're lucky. And I think that that is so misguided because when you are beating up on another group, you are implying that that group has more power than you. Like this comes from the punching up, punching down concept in comedy, right? In stand-up comedy. Like you're allowed to make fun of somebody if they have more power than you, if they're a celebrity, if they're richer than you, whatever. So with that as a premise, this idea that it's okay for women to make fun of men and tear them down because ostensibly men have more power, well, maybe they don't in all cases. I feel that that's just a way of literally handing your power over to somebody who might not necessarily even have it. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're speaking with Megan Dom, author of the book, The Problem with Everything. And Megan is also the host of a podcast called The Unspeakable. I'm reading now from the show's website. Megan talks with artists, entertainers, journalists, scientists, scholars, and anyone else who's willing to do the unspeakable and question prevailing cultural and moral assumptions. Sounds a bit like our show. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Now back to our interview. I asked Megan for solutions. How do we fix the problem that she describes? I knew you were going to ask that. (laughs) You know, I think that, again, it really comes down to this idea of nuance. I think we have to allow ourselves to sit in our own confusion. And, you know, you can be a liberal and a conservative at the same time. There are pieces of us that are fundamentally conservative, and there are pieces of us that are fundamentally progressive. One thing we've seen in a lot of extremist movements is a kind of competition for who can be most pure. And you said at one point, we have to stop canceling ourselves. What's going on there? Well, part of what I meant by we have to stop canceling ourselves is that we have to stop having so much anticipatory anxiety about what we're about to say that we don't say anything at all. I can't tell you how many students I have come to me. I teach graduate writing students for the most part. And these are people with a lot of ideas, very well read, um, you know, have decided that they want to be writers. But nonetheless, they come to me and say, well, you know, what I really want to write about is such and such, but I can't say that. I don't have the energy. I'm going to get shot down in my classroom and uh, I don't want to be beat up on Twitter, so I would never publish this. And it really is disheartening. That just, to me, is completely counter to the whole point of like being a thinking person. And so that, when I say the, the cancel culture is, is troubling because it's rewarding yeah, the people the, who do that, do the opposite, who don't think. A lot of our discussion has been about conversations that you are having that you believe need to happen within this sort of left-leaning liberal consensus. But isn't it also important for conservatives to do this? I mean, don't, don't they need some nuance? Yes. And they need to do things like stop relying on kind of one-note right-wing campus speakers. There are really thoughtful, interesting, complicated thinkers on both sides, there really, really are. And um, I do think there's a growing audience of people that are eager to hear them. Part of it is how you define yourself and what you're willing to step up and say, but also part of it is how you respond to other people. I mean, are you finding this in your personal life? You're surrounded by friends who are all kind of on the same page. Like, do do they handle you, (laughs) you know, the new you appropriately? What have you learned from this? (laughs) You know, uh, what has happened uh, are that I have I have people talking to me privately. I mean, the, the number of times a week that someone says to me, well, I can only tell you this. I'm telling you this, but I wouldn't tell like somebody else. Like on what else. topics? Oh, like how they really feel about something like immigration. They'll say, well, look, I'm horrified by the kids in cages. That's not in question, but... Well, I kind of wonder, like, what is our immigration policy? I've been looking into this. Do we want open borders? Does that make any sense? What were we doing under Obama? Why haven't we been talking about this before? What makes sense? And they say, if I said this at a dinner party among my, you know, supposedly liberal friends, I would get the, the stink eye. But the funny thing is that some of those very same people at the dinner party might come to me separately and say the exact same thing. It's like we're having these private conversations. They're being starved of the oxygen of the, the public sphere. This is not the only hysterical time we've been in. I mean, the, the, the famous example from the 50s is Joe McCarthy and the Red Scare. And you as a Gen Xer grew up um, with, with AIDS 
with the whole AIDS epidemic yes. erupting when you were a child. Um, we're older than that. Um, how does that affect your thinking? You know, that's a really good analogy. So I was a teenager when we started to hear about AIDS. And, you know, I am of this generational cohort. There's a very particular window of us when we were sort of in our early 20s. The safe sex message was in a moment where activists were, were so concerned about, about getting funding and getting the message out there that they really created this, this, I hate to use the word hysteria, but there was a sense of alarmism and they were saying heterosexuals are going to get HIV. I mean, I went to college and I sat there and listened to some like health advocate saying there are lesbians on this campus that are transmitting HIV to other lesbians. You know, the idea was, you know, look around, one of you is going to be dead by the end of this, these four years. And it was crazy. And we bought it. And then as time went by, it was like, hmm, well, actually, this isn't happening. Yes, everyone's on the same page. We need research. But why did we have to use social panic to get here? And I feel like that's happening um, to a greater, lesser degree on, on other fronts at the moment. Actually, I, I think that the overstatements also lead to overstated policies, which often don't work. And the inability to sit down and say, let's really look at the data, let's really study what yeah. works. You know, these aren't just, the, the lack of nuance isn't just something that affects the quality of our conversations. It actually can be manifested in bad policies. That's right, yeah. And I think this is a good example of that. Yes. Celebrating nuance, Megan Dom, thanks for joining us on How Do We Fix It? My pleasure, thank you. Megan Dom, speaking with us in late 2019. It was one of our last interviews we did around the dining room table in New York, Jim. I missed that studio, Richard. I missed sitting around that table in your New York apartment. <laughs> yep. Now to our recommendation. I want to recommend a podcast, and I will admit right up front I have a slight amount of self-interest here. The podcast is called Post-Corona, and it is run by Dan Senor, the noted policy analyst and writer. And he's looking at what is the future of our society as we finally get a grip on this pandemic. He's talked to a lot of interesting people, including the thinker Neil Ferguson, former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, looking at how politics and this virus have intersected, affected each other, and what the future holds. And I'm actually going to be on it shortly. I'm actually recording a session with them later today, talking about some of the work that I do in my column and commentary magazine about vaccines and virus policy. Sounds like a really interesting show. Neil Ferguson, author of several books, and I, I've read, I think, two or three of them. And also Scott Gottlieb's column in the Wall Street Journal has been a focus of sanity and good advice since the pandemic began. This episode and several others with Megan McArdle and Barry Weiss have dealt with the recent and growing problem of intolerance and cancel culture on the left. We give it a lot of attention because, like Megan, uh, we move in circles that read The New York Times and listen to NPR. But there is another form of cancel culture and intolerance that began way before social media and 
talk radio host Rush Limbaugh, who died this week, was very much part of it. He had a huge audience, and his angry, often hateful words influenced millions of people on the right. Yeah, you know, Richard, it's interesting. You come out of a background of commercial radio. You've always been more aware of what was going on in talk radio that was not really on the radar of a lot of people whose universe of uh, of journalism would extend from the Atlantic Monthly to the New York Times to NPR. Uh, but Which is really, phenom- a, you know, a fairly rarefied circle of intellectuals to some extent, right? Yes, but it's a circle that that is that controls the boardrooms of most major corporations, the leadership of most universities, the think tanks. So it's certainly more established in the in the upper reaches of our society than Rush Limbaugh fans. But millions of Rush Limbaugh fans voted. He had a powerful impact on the Republican Party, on pushing uh, the party to a more doctrinaire right-wing point of view on a number of issues. I mean, while politicians were talking with veiled language about welfare queens and same-sex bathrooms, Limbaugh came up with catchphrases like the lamestream media. He spoke of Barack the Magic Negro uh, back in the early days of of. President Obama and, and during the 2008 campaign, he talked about feminazis and liberals who were socialists. He had a way with words that captivated a lot of people. Right. And the point is? The point is that the cancel culture and intolerance on the right began before the left. And I think a lot of what's going on with the left and with social media was in response to that rigid orthodoxy on the right. Oh, so um, cancel culture is Rush no, Limbaugh's no, fault? No, not at all. It isn't his fault, but I think that a lot of what happened um, on the left was in response to what happened on the right, because I do think that talk radio was largely a creature of uh, a change in fairness doctrine, and then also with cable television and with social media, that was the result of technology, not Mm -hmm. what was going on just on the right. Yeah. So you're echoing a point that I often make, which is extremes on the right sometimes are responses to extremes on the left. So, So I guess I'll meet you halfway on that. But what I'm really struck by going back and listening to this interview with Megan is she was reporting on a trend that had been going on for for years, but in a way it was also prescient. After this interview, we saw this big change in the ranks of a lot of elite media institutions. Uh, Barry Weiss left the New York Times after being sort of, she was sort of hounded out by her internal critics. James Bennett, the opinion editor, I think a great editor who really tried to bring a range of different opinions to the paper. He got fired. We saw Andrew Sullivan, the, the contrarian centrist, leave his post at New York Magazine. Even Glenn Greenwald, you know, one of the most left-wing progressive journalists out there, left The Intercept, which he started because he felt he was getting into a place where he didn't have the freedom to explore these dangerous or controversial ideas. Something else that Megan raised was about AIDS and how there was this kind of all or nothing hysterical response in some circles to the tragedy of AIDS. I see something like that emerging with COVID 
I've read several articles in recent days about how once we get vaccinated, nothing much will change. And I don't see that at all. I see the vaccinations as, as a remarkable triumph for science, for ingenuity, and actually for, for big pharma, too. And we can go 50% back to normal, and it's still a great change from where we have been for the last year. This is a syndrome that press does a lot. They don't really trust the public. So they, they feel like if they actually tell you the truth about something, you won't behave properly. And they, so there's this tendency to exaggerate some things and hide other things. Yes, I, I reported on HIV back in those days. And there was definitely an effort for political reasons, valid reasons. You know, I mean, it was a crisis. It wasn't taken seriously enough at first. So you can understand why the activists wanted to make sure everyone in the country got this idea that we could all get it tomorrow. The rationale was understandable, but it's the press's job to be accurate, not necessarily just fit a particular agenda, even one that's very well-intentioned. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we'll be back again next week with another new show. How Do We Fix It is a production of Davies Content. We are podcast consultants, and we make shows for companies and nonprofits. Check us out at DaviesContent.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 